Please remain standing and turn with me to Luke 24. We'll read verses 1 through 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Now, please turn with me to Acts chapter 4. We're going to hear from that same Peter. Just a matter of uh, several weeks later, now emboldened by what he saw and later resurrection appearances of Christ, for this moment, which God was preparing him for. Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. speaking of Peter and John in the temple. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, 
For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Amen. You may be seated. Facts are stubborn things. John Adams famously wrote that. He goes on and he says, And whatever may be our wishes, our inclinations, or the dictates of our passion, they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. You may have uh, heard the phrase before, truth is always a defense. It's used with regard to uh, defamation cases in court that involve libel or slander. And the legal principle is that it's only libel or slander if it's not true. If it's true, well, then the newspaper had the right to put it in print. Truth is always a defense. Peter's response here to the religious high court of Jerusalem kind of reminds me of that principle because to, to defend himself and John, all he really has to do is to point back to the facts, to reaffirm that all that he said is true and that the undeniable miracle that the people of Jerusalem have just seen uh, take place in public that day can only be explained if the message Peter bears is true about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So you could kind of think of this passage as a, as a courtroom drama where the defense Uh, just absolutely tears the prosecution's case to bits. Why? Because the facts are on their side, and it's really a delight to watch here. We're going to look at this passage in three parts. First will be the gathering storm, verses 1 through 7. Second will be the resurrection response, verses 8 through 10. And then third will be the only way, verses 11 and 12. So the gathering storm the resurrection response, and the only way. Here in chapter 4 of Acts, thinking about the big picture, um, a new major theme enters the history of of this book, which is the theme of opposition. Uh, Throughout the book of Acts, there's going to be a sustained, repeated clash uh, between the kingdom of God, as it goes out from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth, and um, the enemies of that kingdom. And so as the church grows, its growth is going to be met by the fierce resistance of people who do not want to see the message of Christ advanced, who, who want the good news of his resurrection from the dead to be hushed up. People who are alarmed by the truth of it, really. Uh, alarmed by that truth threatening their positions of power and influence, both in Israel and beyond Israel. Now, for the first three chapters of Acts, the history has been all victory so far. This first flush of uh, success and the expansion of the gospel, the ascension of Jesus into heaven, the Spirit being poured out from heaven, thousands being converted, Wonders and signs being done through the apostles. But now, for the first time in the book, 
enters this fierce drumbeat of hostility and suspicion. Now, this opposition of the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees, it is new in the book of Acts, uh, but in the broader scope of Luke and Acts put together, of course, this should, sh- this should sound uh, very familiar, right? Uh, because where have you met all of these characters before? Not so very long ago, in terms of the history, the timeline here, in the arrest and the trial and the condemnation of Jesus. Throughout the book of Acts, there are frequently going to be close parallels between uh, the opposition to the apostles and the opposition to Jesus, uh, particularly um, as they come to a head in his trial and his crucifixion. And here it's the same authorities who arrested Jesus and delivered him over to the Romans. It's that same cast of characters, the same people who now hear what's going on in the temple this day, and they think, wait a second, we thought we'd solved this problem. It says, and as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed, it says. And why were they greatly annoyed? What a great phrase. Well, they're annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, it's interesting the way that Luke puts that. What annoys them is that they are proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. It's not just the idea that Jesus uh, may be um, raised that bothers them or that it's being proclaimed that Jesus particularly rose. More than that, it's the idea of resurrection in general that bothers them. And to understand why that message would have bothered this particular group of people, you have to understand something about the culture of Jerusalem and the religious context of Judaism around this time. Luke mentions here particularly the priests and the Sadducees. And the Sadducees, uh, many of you know this, they were a group of wealthy and politically powerful uh, leaders, religious leaders in Jerusalem who had close connections with Herod, the king, and they wielded a lot of influence. Um, In fact, uh, the the priestly families, the family of the high priest in particular, uh, they came from this Sadducee group. That was the Uh, their religious background. Uh, The Sadducees were different from the the Pharisees, uh, who were a much smaller faction. The Sadducees didn't share the Pharisees' same enthusiasm for kind of expanding on the finer points of the Mosaic law. Um, The Sadducees did, however, have some theological distinctives of their own, and one of them was that Sadducees didn't believe in any kind of resurrection at all, any kind of life after death. They thought that death was the end. And uh, that's one of the reasons why Luke's phrasing here is is significant. Annoyed them not just the particular claim that Jesus was alive. Yes, they they were bitterly opposed to Jesus as an individual, no doubt. But to say that he had come back from the dead meant not just the reappearance of that single defeated foe. What it meant was a death blow to their entire doctrinal system and therefore to their power. Already in verses 3 and 4, you can see uh, the futility of their opposition to the apostles right off the bat, because they arrest Peter and John and put them in custody overnight. But in spite of that, what immediately happened? It says more 
more thousands of people who had just heard Peter's sermon there in the temple. They believe what he said, and the church just keeps growing. There is an avalanche that has started here that these Jerusalem leaders are going to be absolutely powerless to stop. And yet, that doesn't mean that they're not going to try. They're not going to continue to rage against it. Verse 5 says, On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. Again, you've seen this before. Peter and John are, as it were, walking the same path that Jesus walked. They're being dragged before the bar of the same court that condemned him. They're facing the same hostility that he faced. By what power or by what name did you do this, they ask. But this time, the outcome in this case is not going to be the same. This trial is going to go quite differently from the trial of Jesus. And that brings us to number two, the resurrection response. Verse eight says, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Notice here how uh, Peter is experiencing as a living, present reality now for him exactly what Jesus promised to his apostles way back in Luke chapter 12. In Luke 12, you remember what Jesus said to, to his disciples? He said, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. Because what's going to happen? The Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And so now what's happening here in this scene is that the reigning Jesus from heaven is keeping that promise to Peter. And the spirit of Pentecost is coming to the aid of Christ's apostle in this moment. He is filling him. He is inspiring him to speak with boldness and clarity before this hostile court and ultimately to carry the day. It says, then Peter, again, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by, which, by what means this man has been healed? And you can see how Peter, <coughs> excuse me, already is pointing out here the, just the absurdity of this whole scenario. What, what is the charge here? What, what do you think that we've done? What are you saying that we've done wrong here? So there was, there was a crippled man at the gate, and, and I told him, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk, and he walked. So sue me, basically. Uh, look, at, look at what's just happened. Why are we being arrested if we're being uh, examined because of this good deed done to a crippled man? Peter and John clearly have the high ground here, and the prosecution, so to speak, doesn't have a leg to stand on. What on earth are they even prosecuting them for? Of course, they know what they're prosecuting them for. It's for the message that they cannot abide, despite the fact that the facts bear out the truth of that message, and yet they don't want to believe it. But Peter is calling them on the carpet about this. And on that basis, in verse 10, he is then able to kind of, kind of press his advantage. He's able to turn the tables, in effect, 
kind of putting the people who have arrested him on trial. Because they are the ones who really have something to answer for. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, this man is standing before you well. See, what's happening here is that by bringing Peter into this public trial setting, what have these religious leaders done? They've worked exactly to the opposite of their intention. They have really done the worst thing that they could have done for their cause. They have given Peter a platform. They have, um, by seeking to suppress his message, they have actually amplified that message. And to make matters worse, they have now opened themselves up to scrutiny as their crime of all crimes is being brought into the light by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. You killed the man who made this man well. Back in chapter 2, when Peter said in Pentecost, in his Pentecost sermon to the crowds gathered there, uh, that God made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. In that case, he was addressing a group of people, those Jerusalem crowds, who, who had kind of a, a, you could say, a secondary responsibility for the death of Jesus. They had been following the lead of others, stirred up by a few to have that hostile crowd response, crying out for Jesus' blood. In chapter 3, Peter even gives a nod to this in verse 17 when he says to the people in the temple, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. So he makes a distinction between the crowds and the rulers. says they both were acting in ignorance. But now what, Peter has come face to face with the masterminds of Jesus' death, the people who were behind it all. This is the cabal that conspired against Jesus in the first place, who personally handed him over to the Romans. And at the time, they thought that that was it. They thought that was the end of Jesus' story, of, of Jesus' movement. They thought that they had pulled up the weed by the roots, that they had gotten rid of it once and for all. But Peter has for them here a very different an alarming message that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. Oh, yes, you killed him, no doubt. But he isn't dead now. A remarkable thing to say. And what a note of triumph rings there in Peter's message. And what a terrifying thought it must have been to this court if they could bring themselves to entertain for a moment the possibility that what Peter was saying might, in fact, be true. Well, that it is, in fact, true, Peter goes on to, to give evidence for us. He continues, By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. In other words, he's saying, 
you asked us by in what name or by what power we did this. John and I don't have that kind of power in ourselves to heal a man like this. We aren't magicians or something. We weren't using some kind of dark arts to lead the people astray. No, our defense is that our actions match our message. Jesus is alive. And he is right now acting from heaven with power to vindicate the good news message that he has entrusted to us to proclaim to the world was not us. It was Jesus who healed this man. And the fact that this man is walking around before you today attests that Jesus is indeed alive because it is in the name of Jesus that we pronounced his cure. A lame man cannot be cured by the mere memory of some dear departed person, no matter how great or powerful or beloved. A person cannot be saved, brought from death and sin to eternal life by the mere memory of a good man, a good teacher of the past. No, the only explanation for the healing of this man and the only explanation for the salvation of any sinner in the present day is that we are healed, brought to life, given strength and grace for a new power in our lives by a living Lord, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, reigning from heaven. This is important not only for the beginning of your Christian life, This is crucial for your entire Christian life, brothers and sisters, that you do not live your Christian life merely on the basis of the memory of Christ, merely by looking back about what he did in the past and gaining inspiration from that for living a better life now um, in honor of his memory. That's not what the Christian life is about. No, we serve a living Lord, the living Lord who is reigning right now from heaven with power through the Holy Spirit to save and authority to command by his word in the living present reality of your life. Christ Jesus, God raised from the dead, never to die again. And he is personally from heaven ruling over his church at this moment. And he is present with us through the Holy Spirit with the same majestic power that raised that lame man to his feet, strengthened his his feet and his ankles, you remember, to go walking and leaping and praising God. It's the same Jesus through the same Spirit who emboldened Peter to speak with this kind of tenacity in the face of the Sanhedrin. That's the same Christ through the same Spirit who is at work now within you as Christ today is building his kingdom on earth, that he is growing his people in holiness and obedience and strength and character through his personal, living, holy, spiritual presence among us and within us. That is the Bible's accounting of the Christian life. See, the resurrection is a fact of history, indeed. But it is not a fact relegated to history. It is a living reality now because... It is a fact because Jesus is alive today and ruling and reigning over us through his spirit. 
Well, finally, we come to verses 11 and 12. The only way. Verse 11, Peter uh, continues this indictment of the religious leaders by um, situating their opposition to Jesus in the context and using the imagery of the Old Testament scriptures. All of these men gathered around interrogating Peter would have known quite well the 118th Psalm, which says in part, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Now, in the Gospel of Luke, uh, Jesus quotes that passage. And we always want to see these parallels between Luke and Acts and see how the apostles are continuing the ministry of Christ. Jesus applies this passage to himself when he tells the parable of the wicked tenant farmers who don't want to give the owner uh, any of the fruit of his vineyard that, that, that they've been tending on his behalf. And so when he sends servants, they beat them, throw them, throw them out. And finally, when he sends his son to them, they kill him. And Jesus asks, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? And he says, well, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Very dire warning to the spiritual leaders of Israel who that very week were plotting to kill him, the son of the owner of the vineyard of Israel. Um, and that insinuation by Jesus was not lost on the people who heard that parable. Luke says, when they heard this, they said, surely not. But it says, Jesus looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. What Peter is doing here in Acts 4 is he is following Jesus' use of this psalm. as He uses it in a similar way. He's saying, listen, you rejected Jesus by crucifying him. And by, reject, by rejecting him, you were rejecting the person who, who is the centerpiece of God's plan for building the household of the true people of God in the last days. You are the builders that that psalm spoke of. See, any Israelite who had grown up singing that psalm would have tended to think of himself and his people as the stone, Right? The nations rejected us. They counted us out as a nation, as a people. But God is going to make us the cornerstone of his plan for the world. And they were not wrong. That psalm does have a near-term reference to Israel. But how is that going to come about? Israel as a nation had failed in their mission. They were never going to be able to become on their own strength or through their own obedience, that cornerstone that God was going to lay for his plan in the world. You see, once again, we come to this notion that Jesus is the true Israelite, that remnant of one, as he is sometimes called, who embodies in himself all that Israel was supposed to have been. 
and carrying out Israel's mission so that now in him, God's people are being built. Jesus and Peter following him then confront unfaithful, unbelieving Israel by turning their perspective on the psalm inside out. See, he's saying if you reject Jesus, then you're not the chosen stone like you want to be, like you like to fancy yourselves to be. No, if you reject Jesus, then you take your place among the foolish and short-sighted builders, rejecting the one who is actually, in fact, the linchpin for God's whole plan of salvation for his people and for the world. That stone that you rejected, you builders, that Jesus whom you crucified, God has now raised from the dead. God has vindicated everything about his ministry that you so vehemently rejected. God has demonstrated then that now, if you want to be part of the true people of God, if you want to be part of his plan for the end time salvation of his people, if you want to be part of the building that is founded upon that stone, can only do that by coming to Jesus. You can only come to God through Jesus because Jesus is the cornerstone that holds that whole building together. Jesus was what holds the whole structure of the household of God together in one piece. He is the only way. I am the way and the truth and the life, Jesus said himself. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that same message then, of the exclusive uniqueness of Jesus is where Peter concludes in verse 12 when he says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I love the way that Peter has by now transformed this moment from a mere defense of his own actions into a venue for gospel proclamation even to those who have him on trial. Peter is not on the defensive here. He's not cowering before this assembled might of Jerusalem's elite and just hoping that they won't hurt him or won't dislike him or won't disapprove of him. No, see, Peter could have stopped by just saying that, well, it was in the name of Jesus that this lame man's body was healed, defending himself and his own actions, but he doesn't stop there. He goes further because the name of Jesus is not just for Peter. It's not just for me. It's for all of you, Peter's saying. Jesus is God's one way of salvation, not just for the body of that lame man, not just for his feet and ankles. Jesus is the only way of salvation for the sin-sick souls of all of those right now who will turn to him in faith, even for the very people who condemned him to death and handed him over to be killed. Jesus is the only way, he's telling these people with urgency. His is the only name that can save you. So here's the implication then, that just as surely, just as surely as in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, that crippled man rose up and walked, just as surely, the name of Jesus Christ has the power to give life and renewal to your dead hearts. The power to cause your soul 
to go walking and leaping and praising God when moments before you had been his enemy, dead in your sin, hopeless before his impending judgment. The same name then that cured the lame man can cure your disease, your helplessness, and your sinful rebellion. Why? Because the Christ who cured that lame man is the same Christ who invites you now. And this message is not just for the Sanhedrin. This is the message for each one of you gathered here in this place, this day, in the presence of that same living Christ. That Christ who cured that lame man is the same Christ who invites you, people of God, to turn from your sin, to embrace him, to embrace all of his promises, and to know the resurrection life that is freely offered, freely given to each of those who trusts and follows the risen Lord Jesus. Yeah, facts are stubborn things, as we began with from John Adams. And whatever may be our wishes, our inclinations, or the dictates of our passion, they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. And there is no fact more stubborn than the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A fact that calls all of us to devote ourselves, to consecrate ourselves to the service of this risen Lord. Trusting in him, first of all, is the only way of rescue from the judgment of God and the renewal of our relationship with God. And one day, not just rescue, not just renewal, but our own resurrection. That forever life with God, body and soul together in the presence of this Jesus, who was rejected once, but is now the cornerstone, is now the risen and reigning King, our Savior and Lord. And as surely today as on that day, beloved, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God, we give you thanks and praise for the resurrection of Jesus and for his gracious, um, empowering uh, reign over us, and his presence through the Holy Spirit among us now. We ask now that as we turn to communion with him through the Lord's table, that um, you would uh, let his word dwell richly in our hearts as we experience his presence in this tangible way that you have given to us in the sacrament. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.